Okay, children, you can go back to your Sunday school. And we're going to turn it over to our speaker today. Let's pray. Our Father, we're uh, grateful for um, yet another opportunity, another uh, chance to uh, be together and to think about the Lord Jesus and to remember the Lord Jesus and to think about uh, your so great a salvation that you've granted so freely to us in uh, your beloved Son. Uh, We're thankful for your word, and we just ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, um, just help us as we uh, look into it this morning, preach, uh, teach, teach us, and Uh, encourage us in the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, A verse in Colossians. Now, um, just a couple of things that we need to uh, add uh, to uh, last Sunday for sure. Uh, We had said that that the book of Genesis wasn't a historical record, and um, if that's what you heard, what we meant to say was that... um, that the book of Genesis is not primarily historic. It's primarily spiritual. Uh, when the book of Genesis touches on history, it is 100% accurate, just like when it touches on geography or any of these other things. It's, it's accurate, but it's, it's primarily spiritual. Right? And the, the Bible itself is a spiritual book. Um, it's divine. You know, Sir Robert Anderson uh, points this out in uh, the silence of God that this is a divine collection that nothing in this book is by chance or nothing in this book is random uh, the Lord Jesus uh, could say that that um, every jot and tittle was inspired and so this idea of uh, working through the word of God and and uh, seeking to see these things tied together. This this is a spiritual exercise, but the book is tied together. You know, we're going to see that in uh, Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, um, the apostle says in verse 16, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Okay, and so that's a verse that, that connects the Feast of Leviticus chapter 23 to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is saying that, that these things are, are, are spiritual, that you can look at the Levitical Feasts of uh, chapter 23 and Exodus 12 and and you can see how these things are, are joined intimately to the New Testament and joined intimately in the person of Christ, that all of these things uh, pointed that uh, student of the Word of God to the person of the Lord Jesus. Now, we want to see, um, just back a little bit further in this, um, in this chapter, uh, in, or sorry, in this book, and in, in first in, in Colossians chapter 1, we want to see in... Um, Verse 23, 
Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So first he was a minister of the gospel. And then down, just one more verse, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church of which I became a minister. And so the apostle Paul was first a minister of the gospel and joined to that, he was a minister, a servant of the church. And so these two things were never separated. Hey, listen, the work of the devil is to separate. That's how he operates, right? Go through endless, endless accounts of this idea of trying to separate, okay? And the Lord Jesus always kept these things joined together. You remember that when the um, uh, devil came to the Lord Jesus at the temptation that um, he invited him to fall down and worship him and all the kingdoms of the earth he would grant to him. Uh, you remember that? He talked about worship and and um, the Lord Jesus quoted from the Old Testament, the verse in its entirety, said, you worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. So the devil separated worship and service. The Lord Jesus brought these things back together, kept these things joined together. So always this twofold ministry, the twofold ministry in the life of the apostle Paul. And again, we see this uh, twofold aspect back in Leviticus chapter 23. So turn back if you could. Now, these things that are um, joined together, it's not always obvious in how they fit together, but that doesn't mean that they're not joined, right? I mean, um, I have a friend uh, who uh, lives in British Columbia, and uh, he's been involved in the work of the Lord. He's been in assembly fellowship, he was just recently telling me, uh, 82 years. I mean, that's pretty commendable. Uh, He was born in the assembly and he's never left it. And um, he's convinced of it. So in his mind, he's been in the assembly 82 years. And so there's lots of things he he understands. Now, he's um, very active in the work of God and um, he's been single his whole life. And so he says this, he does not understand how a man and a woman can ever be together in the sense of getting along. He said, they're just so opposite. Well, I don't know what you think about that, but there's probably some truth, right? Um, but this idea that, that the Lord joins these things together, right? He does that, and it's a, a work of God. I mean, there are, hey, in lots of ways, you can think even on Valentine's Day, how men and women are not the same. I mean, uh, it's not that long ago, uh, my wife said to me, uh, Cindy said that, uh, she didn't have any black shoes for an outfit. And I'm like, you got a hundred black shoes. She says, yeah, but not for that outfit. And I'm like, I, I don't understand. <laughs> Do you understand that? Right. And the men, they say, I, I don't understand that. The women, they're like, of course, it's obvious. And so, uh, this idea of, coming together. Well, this is what the Lord does. And so in Leviticus chapter 23, we want to think of things that are joined together. Okay, so it starts um, 
in, and we've gone through the feasts, right? We, we remember them. We've kind of brushed over, we've seen how these things are all joined together in all of scripture, but let's, let's work through things that are joined together. So in verse four, um, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover, and on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And so the first things we see joined together are the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, you think that's true? Think about that. Is there New Testament authority for that principle? Hey, well, somebody look up Luke chapter 22 for us, the first verse, and read it to us. And this idea of answering the question, are these two things joined together in the mind of God, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Now, we've already seen how um, John continues to uh, build on the Levitical feasts, and he has these closely tied to his gospel. But what about uh, the first verse in Luke chapter 22? Who's got it? David, you got it. Read it to us. Verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. Okay, stop. Were they joined together in the mind of Luke? Uh-huh. Actually, he says the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the Passover. Even that's opposite, right? You would have thought he would have said the Passover, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but he doesn't. And so in his mind, these two things are never separated. Um, here, the Passover, no question, no question the Passover from Exodus chapter 12 is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of the work of Christ on behalf of the world. Now, if you've entered into it, praise the Lord for that. But it's a picture of the work of Christ for the world, okay? Second uh, Corinthians, uh, uh, Paul talks about uh, how how the ministry of reconciliation was given to him, how God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. So when we think of the Passover, this is the work of Christ on behalf of the world. But it's connected, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, even back in Exodus chapter 12. And so that's a picture of salvation. That's what it is. Now, salvation for the world, but... Salvation individually, for sure. And, and linked to that, it, back in Exodus chapter 12, it, it, it follows up just, just right under that the blood was shed for the lamb and it was applied to the doorpost. That's salvation. Um, and then right underneath that, it said they fed on the roasted lamb. That's exactly what it says. Just one sentence later, they fed on the roasted lamb. And then underneath that, just a little bit further down, it said they put leaven out of their house. Well, what's the corresponding twofold uh, truth taught in the New Testament to that? It's um, salvation and discipleship. Um, the Apostle Paul never, ever thought about making converts. Now, now, now listen to that. He never, ever thought about making converts. You know, we saw how... Um, uh, on Wednesday night, the feasts of Leviticus chapter 23 were tied to First Thessalonians. 
right? And in 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter, Paul tells this wonderful testimony of how these Thessalonian Christians were saved and their life, their lives uh, were talked about um, in the whole region. They had this incredible testimony, right? Um, in chapter 3, in chapter 3, he says that uh, he was burdened in his heart, uh, not knowing how they were doing. And so he had to send Timothy to them. And this is what he said. This idea that if they didn't continue on, his ministry would have been in vain, empty, of no value. I think, well, um, clearly they were already converted. Paul says, I, I'm not interested in making converts. What was he interested in making? He was interested in making disciples. Where in the world would he get that novel idea from? <laughs> the commission. The commission was to go into the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe all things. And so these things are always joined together. Now, I know if we, as we discuss these things, um, we can separate them for clarity of thought. But if we break them up too much, just like in, uh, you've heard the illustration of the biology class. I mean, the student, he takes the frog apart so he can see how all the parts work. Right? Independently of one another. Guess what he can never do? Can never give the frog life again. Right? Once it's been all divided up. And so, yes, as we discuss and work through the doctrines of so-called soteriology or the study of salvation, we understand these are distinct ideas, but they're always joined together ultimately at the end. Right? So, um, salvation, discipleship. Right? That's connected here. Uh, it's interesting to notice that... Um, even in the order in Exodus chapter 12, that the blood is applied, right? That's conversion. Uh, then you feed upon, then they fed upon the roasted lamb, feeding upon Christ, right? That's what that's a picture of, right? Um, and then the leaven was put out. Hey, often we reverse that order, right? We can't get any victory in our life over sin, right? What's the problem? Hey, we're not feeding upon the person of Christ. Uh, as he's revealed in his word, hey, you think of all the uh, uh, books of missionary stories, you're thinking of a missionary conference, you think of all those stories of missionaries and um, men and women who've done great exploits for God, they all have one thing in common. What was it? Well, they were all students of the word of God. You know that, right? I mean... We think of George Mueller. Hey, George Mueller's wife, after he was gone, said he read his Bible 200 times from cover to cover. Uh, Harry Ironside, 120 times. Um, Hudson Taylor studied his Bible through every year, sat the feet of the Lord Jesus as he's revealed in the Word of God. I mean, I remember um, a sister in our assembly at home who really struggled with sin, moral issues in her life, and would come often to the to the assembly, to the leadership for for counsel, and she would be asked, how are you doing with your devotions? How are you doing with your Bible reading? Yeah, I really struggle lots of days. I don't... And so, well, these things are a recipe for disaster, right? Recipe for disaster. These things are always joined. Uh, conversion, the blood applied by faith, feeding upon the roasted lamb, feeding upon Christ as he's revealed in the word, then the putting out of the leaven, 
right? You bring Christ into your heart and, uh, hey, listen, sin can't live there, right? Uh, but it's not this idea that you have to put it out first. And so the order is reversed. Always the order of Scripture uh, important. So things join together. Uh, so we have um, in Leviticus chapter 23, we have the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We saw how that's joined together. Um, joined together even in Luke's gospel and other places in the New Testament. We had Colossians. We could see Ephesians as well. Then uh, the third the third feast, which we already thought about, is the um, resurrection. And, and, and we want to be reminded that the, that the gospel message is a message of reconciliation, right? You know, that, you know, God has already reconciled himself to man, right? Um and so we, we preach, like Paul preached, be reconciled to God. We preach that message. Uh, but you know, it doesn't stop there, right? It doesn't stop there. Uh, reconciliation is a message of the church too, isn't it? You know, and that's the, the next stage. The third feast is the uh, Feast of Weeks. And uh, this speaks of uh, resurrection. You know, this idea of living in resurrection power, living in the land, if you will, living on the other side. And so part of living in resurrection power is that ability to reconcile relationships. Well, where is that sphere? Well, that sphere is the next feast, the fourth one, um, the Feast of um, Weeks, and that's connected with the church. Actually, you see, uh, let's look at verse 17. It says, you shall bring from your dwellings Two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. Now we already saw last week, and this speaks to the person of Christ. These two tenths, and and, and that's helpful stuff. But but you have here two uh, loaves, and so hey, when we're thinking of things joined together. You're thinking of the church. What are the two things joined together in the church? Jew and Gentile. How hard do you think that was to do? I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't know South Florida, uh, but I can tell you in Canada. I don't think we have groups. I'm not sure if we do groups that could accurately represent what it meant to join a Jew to a Gentile in one meeting. Not just to be joined together, but to be intimately joined together, to love and to pray for one another and to build one another. Hey, there. This is reconciliation. This is what the basis of the New Testament church is about. It's about reconciliation. Uh, Jew and Gentile joined together. You have that in Corinthians. You have that in Colossians. Right? I mean, this is an overarching theme of the New Testament. How's it connected to the feasts? This idea of reconciliation. Reconciliation uh, in the church. Is there a New Testament equivalent? Well, I think there is. I think we read from it this morning. First uh, Corinthians chapter eleven. Let's turn to it. Now, um, again, as we think of any passage of Scripture, we want to think of the context. And what is the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11? 
Well, we think, okay, what's the, what's the context of the feasts of Jehovah? Lots of, um, lots of, um, eating, I would think, right? Lots of feasts. They're called feasts, holy convocations, but this idea of lots of eating together, I mean, that's the premise of Exodus chapter 12, meals together. Is that the, um, context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, do you think? Like, we know that in one of the, um, the rules of Bible interpretation is to go through any passage and see the word used in its repetition, right? And so we saw that in John chapter 1. We proved that, remember, at the very beginning that, you know, day one, light, day one in Genesis 1 is light, and that's the, that's the overarching theme of the first nine verses of John chapter 1, light, 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 eight times. Um, what about 1 Corinthians 11? Eating and drinking. Well, we start back in uh, actually chapter 10 to get context. And look at this. Um, verse 3. All ate. Verse 4. All drank. Uh, they drank. Verse 7. Eat and drink. Uh, verse 21, drink and partake. Uh, verse 28, but if anyone says to you this is offered idols, do not eat. Uh, verse 31, therefore whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, either notice this either to the Jews or to the Greeks, Right, so again, this twofold. So eating and drinking in chapter eleven. Then when you turn to chapter, or sorry, chapter ten. Then when you turn to chapter eleven, verse twenty. Therefore, eat. Uh, verse twenty-one. Eating, uh, eat and drink. Uh, further down, verse twenty-four. Take, eat. Verse twenty-five. Drink it. Um, verse twenty-seven. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup. Verse 28, eat of the bread, drink of the cup. Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks. And then lastly, verse 33, uh, therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat. And so eating and drinking, whatever that means, is significant in these two chapters. Well, what does it mean? Well, it, it's joined to, to fellowship, right? This idea of relationship. And we're all... We've already said that that the message of the gospel at its foundation is a message of reconciliation. First, to be reconciled to God, and then this ongoing thing of being reconciled to one another. Now, um, the Feast of Jehovah, right? The Feast of Jehovah, these annual events. We've already talked about the calendar. You know, these things all happen that exact time. The same day of the month every year, but they all only happen once a year. Um, the Lord's Supper is never called a feast. I mean, it is in hymnology, right? In the hymn book, it's called a feast, but it's never called a feast in the New Testament. It's called a supper. What's the difference between a feast and supper? 
Well, I mean, huh? What do you think? Well, supper speaks of um, something that goes on continually. It's not this idea of something that only happens once every year. How often do you have supper? Every day. The Lord's Supper, and that's part of the emphasis, he says. It's not a once a year thing. He says as often, right, as is often. So there's that first. So it's this idea of continuance. Um, you know that the Lord judged in Corinthians believers for certain behavior. He actually took them home early, right? What was the sin? Unworthiness. Well, yeah, it is. It's in... Um, it's in the, the last half of verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats in an un, drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. Here's the sin not discerning the Lord's body. What is the Lord's body? What do you guys think? South Florida, what is the Lord's body? People. Do you have a verse for that? Ephesians 4, what does it say? Well, we, you read that. Go ahead. Read us Ephesians 4. This is proof. I'll read you a verse in uh, the next chapter, too, as Dave's looking that up. Verse 12 of chapter 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. What have you got, Dave? Yep, there's one body. Hey, there's no question. When he says there's one body, the whole of chapter 4 is about believers, individual believers. Christ is the head. We're the body, right? One body, that's us. That speaks of unity, right? That speaks of things joined together. That's what unity is. And so whatever was happening in 1 Corinthians for which they were judged, they weren't discerning the Lord's body. That's why the exhortation, you know, that always comes at the end of the chapter was to wait for one another. Is that true, do you think? Is that what the Lord's Supper is about? Well, it's what it was about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Eh? The whole book is about reconciliation, right? Reconciliation in the lives of Christians. And so, actually, this is not... Uh, foreign or just unique to this passage, the Lord Jesus in talking about worship, do you remember he has this? There's not a lot of verses and commands for worship. But remember he said this, if you come to worship and you remember, what do you remember? When you come together, you come to worship and you remember, what do you remember? Remember the Lord? 
well, let me see how we could do that. You remember that a brother has something against you. What do you do? You leave your gift, the altar, and you go to that brother and you make it right and then you come back and you give your offering. So whatever the Lord's Supper is about, it's, uh, hey, it's connected with this idea of reconciliation one to another. How many times have you seen it? Um, I say, well, I do it all the time. I say sorry to my family every Sunday morning before I go to remember the Lord. I say, well, praise the Lord for that. Probably not far off. I mean, you probably are right doing that. Um, I probably shared this story before, but to me it's the one that stands out the most in my life. Some years ago I was teaching or preaching at Turkey Hill, and um, it was a Saturday afternoon and preaching something about some armor, and, and his brother yells out from way back, that's heresy. I'm like, um, uh, excuse me? He goes, that's heresy. I'm like, uh, well, which part? I mean, I say all kinds of things that I get challenged on. Which part of what I just said? He said, well, the armor, the arrow piercing under the arm. I'm like, uh, oh, I'm like, okay, well, that's easy then. That could be right, what you're saying. I mean, I just always assumed it was because it was between the plates that it was under the arm. But he said, no, 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 that's heresy. I'm like, okay, whatever, brother, that's fine. And so um, uh, later that afternoon, uh, he came to me. He goes, uh, brother, can I talk to you? And I'm like, yeah, sure. He said, uh, you know, I went back to my room and I read that passage. And, you know, um, you could be right about what you said, it could have been under the arm. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, no, no problem. He says, no, but I want to apologize. I'm like, okay, sure. He says, I'm sorry. I'm like, okay, thank you. I uh, forgive you. He says, do you forgive me? I'm like, yeah, I forgive you. He says, are we good? I'm like, yeah, we're good. He, says, he grabs me and kisses me. I'm like, yeah, hey, we're, uh, we're good. So the next morning, Sunday morning, all that same group gather to remember the Lord and before the meeting, he goes, uh, hey, brother, are we still good? I'm like, hey, we're still good. We don't have to kiss. We're good. <laughs> and so he stands up in the Lord's Supper at the very beginning with, I'd say, 300 people there and says, you know, yesterday I stood up and said what I said, and I went back and read it, and, you know, hey, I've already gone and apologized to the brother, and he's forgiven me. And um, I just like to publicly apologize to everybody. And he sat down. You think, hey, how many times do you think I've seen that in the assembly? Hundreds? Well, it probably could have been done every Sunday, in fairness. Somebody could have done it. But you know, I've only seen that once. And yet that seems to be the emphasis the Lord's Supper, not discerning the Lord's body. This idea of how we're joined together. You know, for a long time, a long time, we hear teaching the Lord's Supper, the chief meeting of the assembly. It's this idea of we gather all our stuff together and we bring it and offer it to the Lord. Right? You've heard that. You fill your basket up. Really? You know, that's really an Old Testament doctrine. The official day... The official day of worship in the Jewish economy was which day? Saturday. It was the seventh day of the week. So they gathered up all week, and on the seventh day they came with their offering. Um, that's not the official day of the church. 
right? We already um, tried to show that, uh, you know, Sunday, the day of resurrection, right? The day of resurrection. That's the official day of the church. It was on Sunday that the New Testament church met. It wasn't on Saturday. It was the first day of the week. Uh, actually, we suggested that um, it was that same day that the ark came to what? What's the word? Rest. Rest. Uh, F.W. Grant says that um, you see that the Jewish faith builds into this. You know, it's the building up, the building up, and the all these days, and then on the seventh day, he said that's the opposite of the New Testament. Hey, that the successful... Christian life flows out a position of rest. And it flows out of the finished work of the Lord Jesus. We don't come at the end of the week. Hey, listen, we hardly make it if we're honest. But thankfully, we can come on Sunday morning before the week starts and we can reflect on the finished work of the Lord Jesus. That... Um, that the successful Christian life is Christ lived in us. His life lived through us. Hey, that's what's a fruitful life to the Lord. A fruitful life to the Lord is Christ's character formed in the individual believer. And so we can come and, and, um, and gather together and think about the finished work of the Lord Jesus. Think about our relationships with one another. That's what the Lord's body is. He's the head. Body is individual believers. That's our relationship with one another. And um, and think about how these things tie together. Now, so we saw how uh, Leviticus tied to the New Testament. We saw today the epistles. But, you know, John's concept is not foreign to this. So we want to turn and close with uh, John chapter 13. And, and again, see these principles emphasized. Now, we, we said that... Uh, in passing, maybe, maybe you didn't hear it, but that the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are always lots of similarities, mostly similarities between them. And that's why they're called the three synoptics, this idea from the same viewpoint, right? Synonymous, this synonymous viewpoint. Uh, scholars have pointed out that, that um, John's gospel is mostly unique to himself. 95% of what he writes is unique to himself. And so uh, all three of the synoptics mention the institution of the Lord's Supper. Okay, And so uh, we actually had from chapter 22, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover. That's the chapter in Luke's gospel where the Lord's Supper is instituted. Right? We said the Lord's Supper is not a feast. It's different. It's this idea of repetition. And so... Um, uh, so Matthew talks about the institution of the Lord's Supper. Mark talks about the institution of the Lord's Supper. Luke talks about the institution of the Lord's Supper. John doesn't. Hey, how many of those disciples were there that night in the upper room? Or sorry, sorry, how many of the New Testament writers of those four New Testament writers were in the upper room that night? Was Matthew there? Yeah, yeah, he'd have been there. Was Mark? No. Was Luke? No, he wouldn't have been there. Uh, 
So actually of the three first writers that mentioned the institution of the Lord's Supper, only one of them was there. But thankfully John was there. But he doesn't actually mention the Lord's Supper. But the chapter that it should be in, if he was going to mention the Lord's Supper, it would be chapter 13. That's where it would fit, right? But he doesn't, he doesn't mention the cup and the loaf. What does he mention? Well, um, you know, I remember uh, listening to Bill McDonald talking about the Gospels. He has a message on the four Gospels. He says, so, you know, sometimes we, uh, we talk about, um, you know, that Matthew is the Gospel written for the Jews, emphasizing the kingship of the Lord Jesus. And we say amen to that. We love that. He says, Mark is the Gospel that emphasizes the servanthood of the Lord Jesus. Right? We say we praise the Lord for that. And then Luke is the gospel that um, presents the um, Lord Jesus as the uh, perfect man, right? written for Gentiles, if you will. And, of course, John is the gospel that presents the Lord Jesus in his deity, as God. Uh, and so he says, the, um, you would think that the um, greatest act in servitude the greatest individual act in servitude would be in Mark's gospel, right? Because Mark is the gospel that presents the Lord Jesus as the perfect servant. John, he says, presents the Lord Jesus in his deity. He said, chapter 13, the greatest act in servitude, he said, is by the gospel or by the Lord Jesus as he's presented in his deity. God. As a servant, Bill McDonald says, all I could do is bow my heart and worship. He said, I can't explain it. And here it is. It says, supper, verse 2, being ended, the devil, all, uh, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going to God. It's a comma. Warren Worsby in his little uh, sermon outlines asked the question, if this was said of you or said of me, all things being put into my hands, what would the next line say? Would it say this? He rose from supper laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Where the other gospel writers emphasize a cup and a loaf, John emphasizes a towel and a basin. What's it connected with? It's connected with defilement in the feet of his own. He actually goes on down the chapter to explained to his disciples because they didn't understand it. He said, it's not about foot washing. If it was just about foot washing, it'd be easy to understand. He said, it's about that involvement in the life of one another, right? The life of one another, helping, cleansing, caring, right? That's what it's about. It's about relationships. Now, it's not about conversion, Hey, the, these men were had been 
believers in God for a long time. Hey, long before John chapter 1. But um, hey, they understood that uh, by walking in the world, their feet would become defiled. They would become dirty. And there would be challenges in their relationships. And the Lord Jesus commended to their care the care of one another. And this is not the devil's message. The devil's message is, am I my brother's keeper? That's what he says. What's the answer? Yes, you're your brother's keeper. I'm my brother's keeper. You know, Bill McDonald says that, um, you know, that the church in South Florida, any part of the world, is only doing as well as its weakest member. You know, this is the world sees this. I mean, when a Christian falls into moral sin, your testimony is affected by that, right? You go into the workplace and your friend who you've been sharing with, hey, they know about this, right? This is what they talk about. And so you have to have an answer for that. You're connected. Hey, we're in the body of Christ. And so even the Lord's Supper is connected with this idea of relationships. And it goes back to Leviticus chapter 23. And so we do care for one another. And even in the upper room, the Lord Jesus taught his disciples about that. Taught his disciples about unity. Because remember, as the Lord Jesus prayed in chapter 17, unity is the key to world missions. Right? I heard over here, as we were thinking of... Um, uh, next weekend, what was the title of the conference? What was it about world missions? Malcolm, do you remember what the title was? It was something about um, stimulating us. Who's got it? Dave, you, ha- you announced it. What was the title of it? Four. World missions, did you just add that or is that in the title? That was nice. Okay, so he just added that. But hey, that's right. Guess what? Guess what the key to world missions is? Uh, John chapter 17. Verse 20. He says, the Lord Jesus praying, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their words that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Notice this, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe. And then down, verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know. So that the world may believe and that the world may know. Hey, it happens in here. If it's not happening here, it's not happening out there. Hey, they already know about broken relationships. They already know about broken marriages and broken family circles. They know about all that stuff. They see it. They live it. Um, But it's tragedy when it comes into here. And we know it does. We said uh, last week that Jabe says that um, that there's there's some relationships that only the rapture will fix. But praise God, it will fix them. But it doesn't mean we quit trying and quit striving to encourage and exhort and take care of one another. 
and love one another. Why? Because it is what the key is to having an impact in the lives of those that we come in contact with every day, which is what we want, right? Yeah, we want that. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we're uh, grateful for your word. Uh, We're thankful for um, the challenges of your word, and we pray that we would be challenged, challenged in our lives to uh, live for Christ, um, to be different. Uh, We ask for understanding. We know that um, James, by your spirit, says that when we uh, lack wisdom, and, and Father, we confess we do, that we have this privilege to ask from you and you don't abrade uh, but you give liberally to all and so we we pray for wisdom to uh, put your word into practice to understand and and to make a difference to be a light uh, to love one another Uh, and so father we just pray for a blessing in each um, family that's here Uh, thank you for each one and um, pray your blessing in the name of the lord jesus amen